0: me here. It is a privilege to be invited to speak at this venerable institution of learning, on so auspicious an occasion, the dedication of Oxford as a point of light, as part of the festivities commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Peace Palace in The Hague. Given the occasion, the theme of my brief talk, as Brian has indicated, will be the promotion of peace through the application of International Criminal Justice, with particular reference to the International Criminal Court. But in making my remarks, uh, I would also like to draw upon my experience at the UN International Criminal Tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and one. I begin, however, by emphasizing the importance of this occasion. In commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Peace Palace, they're celebrating the ideals for which this remarkable building stands ideals of international justice. The Peace Palace itself was built largely through the generosity, as (coughs) Brian indicated, of Andrew Carnegie, the self-taught Scottish immigrant to the United States who made his fortune in the steel industry and turned to philanthropy later in his life, endowing libraries and institutions of learning. Carnegie was deeply interested in promoting world peace and the construction of the Peace Palace was one of the products of that dedication became the home of the Permanent Court of Arbitration in 1913, and that's a court which still sits there. And later, it became the home of the Permanent Court of International Justice, which ceased its hearings in 1940 as the storms of war engulfed the world. Rising like a phoenix from the ashes of the Second World War, its successor, the International Court of Justice, began work in 1946 as one of the foundational institutions of the new United Nations. The judicial institutions housed in the Peace Palace offer states the opportunity to submit legal disputes to fair and impartial determination, thus allowing for their peaceful resolution. The Peace Palace thus represents the long-term goal of sustainable peace building. It also serves now not only as the home of a court, but as a forum for discussion of many issues relating to human rights, justice, and peace. That Oxford, with its reputation as one of the great intellectual centers of Europe and the world, should become a point of light in support of the ideals of the peace Palace, And what that represents for humanity is very good indeed. (coughs) The experience of the Nuremberg and Tokyo military tribunals and of the more recent UN International Criminal Tribunals paved the way for the creation of the International Criminal Court, or ICC, by the Rome Statute in 1998. (laughs) As you know, the ICC is the first permanent international criminal court with a competence that is complementary to national jurisdictions. The court started its operations in 2002 following the 60th ratification of its founding document, the Rome Statute. The court celebrated its 10th anniversary last year. There are now 122 states parties to the statute, the largest regional group being composed of African states parties, which number 34. Although it has a relationship with the United Nations, the ICC is separate and independent from the UN system and is governed by the assembly of states parties to the Rome Statute. The memory of the Holocaust and other mass crimes of the 20th century was very much in the minds of the framers of the Rome Statute, which provides the legal framework for the ICC. Since the preamble to the statute records that the state's parties to it are mindful that during the 20th century, millions of children, women and men have been victims of unimaginable atrocities that deeply shock the conscience of humanity. The crimes that fall within the ambit of the ICC are thus genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. In the future, it is expected that the ICC will also have jurisdiction over the crime of aggression. <coughs> the framers <coughs> of the Rome Statute created the ICC to bring to justice the perpetrators of the most serious crimes of concern to <coughs> the international community as a whole, because they recognize that such grave crimes threaten the peace and well-being of the world. So you have embedded in the very preamble to the Rome Statute the linkage of the concepts of peace and justice. It may be that the framers of the Rome Statute considered that accountability for the worst crimes must be a component of the peace-building process. The application of international criminal justice is thus meant to promote peace in post Conflict situations. Peace and justice, however, are sometimes portrayed as conflicting principles. One is only achieved at the expense of the other, as it is sometimes said. But well, I would suggest that the two principles are in fact inseparably intertwined, and that each is necessary to the other. Those who are engulfed in conflict may receive justice as an unattainable goal, and long for peace at any price. This may be entirely understandable. I can illustrate the point with a story. It's a true story, and I only heard it the other day. Some years ago, long before my time at the ICC, the office of the prosecutor was investigating the crimes committed in Uganda by Joseph Kony and the Lord's Resistance Army peace discussions between the Ugandan government and the LRA had been initiated and opinion was divided over whether the ICC's intention to prosecute Kony was harmful or helpful to this process. The negotiations ultimately proved fruitless. The elders in the communities affected preferred to see the ICC bow out but acknowledged that the victims of Kony's depredations wished the ICC to remain involved in the situation. The office of the prosecutor had a team on the ground taking witness statements. Although our people were attempting to operate as quietly as possible, it would have been pretty obvious that they weren't locals. And so word got around. One day a woman, having walked a great distance, arrived with her daughter asking to see the team. The woman told them that she was against their being there and wanted nothing to do with them. She wanted peace, And she didn't see that the ICC's presence <clears throat> was any help. However, her daughter wanted to give a statement. Her daughter had been abducted by the LRA and was a victim. In her insistence that her mother take her to see the investigators, the girl had given her mother no peace. And so her mother had brought her to us our investigators took the girl's statement. There you have a microcosm, within one family, the often anguishing tension between the desire for justice and the wish for peace. No two situations are the same. And in the past, different countries have resolved this tension in different ways. Uruguay, for example, chose amnesty for human rights abusers via a referendum following the restoration of democracy after military dictatorship. Whereas Argentina has put senior military officers responsible for the excesses of the dirty war on trial as part of the process of restoring peace and democracy rather than just consigning these tribulations to history. While one should respect the choices individual countries make in attempting to heal themselves from the traumas of oppression, conflict, and war, At the international level, it is fair to say that insisting upon accountability for the worst crimes is considered to be an integral feature of the promotion of peace. For example, the preambles to the statutes creating the UN ad hoc tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and for Rwanda link accountability to the promotion of peace and reconciliation. Indeed, the creation of these tribunals by the UN Security Council under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter was a response to situations that threatened international peace and security. And it was deemed necessary as part of the peace building effort to prosecute those responsible for genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes in the conflicts the tribunals were set up to address. Moreover, consider the Special Court for Sierra Leone which has just completed its work with the judgment of the Appeals Chamber dismissing the appeal of Charles Taylor, as I understand it, (coughs) now taking up residence in one of Her Majesty's prisons. The Special Court was successful in bringing the worst perpetrators on all sides of the decade-long civil war in Sierra Leone to account for their crimes. This has without doubt contributed powerfully to the peace process in Sierra Leone. We must not fear insisting that justice be served as an integral part in building sustainable peace. What remains vividly in my mind from the time I worked at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia is the decision of the prosecutor, who was then Louise Arbour, to bring an indictment against Slobodan Milosevic, that time the sitting head of state in Serbia. Louise Arbour was under tremendous pressure not to do so, because some considered that Milosevic was playing a crucial role in bringing peace to the Balkans. His prosecution would, it was feared, prolong the conflict and cost lives. In the end, the prosecutor determined that she would follow the evidence and discharge her mandate. None of the dire predictions materialized, and Milosevic was eventually delivered to The Hague by Serbia, where he faced trial. His death short-circuited the trial proceedings. It was his removal and trial that contributed ultimately to peace, not his presence in Belgrade. I was also involved in the early trials at the Rwanda Tribunal in Arusha, Tanzania. And I'd like to relate one or two of my experiences there to underscore the importance of justice to individual victims and witnesses as ordinary people caught up in dreadful events who then become involved in the trial process. We used to visit our witnesses after they testified in in the safe house, and we wanted to thank them and just check up on them before uh, they left Arusha. And their reactions were interesting. I don't recall any of them saying they regretted testifying. There was a lot of negative propaganda in Rwanda against the tribunal, and I remember one witness saying that it wasn't true. It was clear to him that the judges understood what had happened listened attentively to his testimony. It was an empowering experience for many. (coughs) Some never believed they would see their oppressors in the prisoner's lock. It had never occurred to them that there would ever be an accounting for the genocide. Our witnesses usually testified under protective measures to ensure that their identity was not revealed to the public, although it was always known to the accused. I was in Kigali one day during a break in the trials, and I saw a witness whose evidence I had adduced in court standing across the street. I wasn't sure what to do. I didn't feel I could acknowledge him for fear of revealing that he'd been a witness. But when he spotted me, he came across the street and hugged me. The criminal justice process is extremely important to victims. This is why I believe victims have been given so important a role <coughs> under the Rome Statute. Under the Rome Statute, as you know, the court cannot be where national authorities are genuinely investigating or prosecuting <coughs> suspects for the same criminal conduct. The preamble to the statute emphasizes that the ICC shall be complementary to national criminal jurisdictions, recalling that it is the duty of every state to exercise its criminal jurisdiction over those responsible for <coughs> international crimes. Thus, the ICC is a court of last resort, which by law may only intervene by default where the relevant national authorities are either unable or unwilling to exercise criminal jurisdiction over those responsible for war crimes, crimes against humanity, or genocide. For this reason, the office of the prosecutor, conducting preliminary examinations of situations that are referred to the court or that come to the prosecutor's attention, seeks to determine whether national authorities are responding appropriately to the situation. Given the principle of complementarity upon which the Rome Statute System of International Justice (coughs) is built, the prosecutor has adopted the approach of encouraging action on the part of national authorities to address international crimes in relevant situations. Encouraging action at the national level, of course, helps spread the rule of law. It promotes local responses to the plight of victims, and makes dispensing justice particularly relevant to the place where the crimes have been committed. It also contributes to the process of peace-building and reconciliation. A case in point is Colombia. The situation in Colombia is one that the Office of Prosecutor has had under preliminary examination for quite some time. Preliminary examination is, of course, a necessary and sometimes protracted process that we must undertake pursuant to the statute in order to advise the prosecutor who will then decide whether or not to open an investigation with a possible prosecution in view. This process is followed no matter how the situation comes to the court. No case is admissible before the court if national authorities are genuinely handling it. As as I've explained, in the situation (laughs) arising in Colombia, the involvement of the office of the prosecutor has entailed coordination with national authorities to monitor events and encourage inclusion of accountability in the peace process. For us, the Rome Statute requires that those most responsible for the worst crimes be held genuinely accountable. Justice goes hand in hand with peace building. A number of situations have moved beyond preliminary examination. Prosecutions have arisen from investigations the office has opened into these situations. Right now we have two active trials, one matter still in trial mode that's not in court at the moment, two trials pending, and two matters at different stages of the confirmation of charges process. In addition, there are two cases on post-trial judgment appeal, <clears throat> in all of these cases, the prosecutor was either invited by a state party to investigate a situation where it was unable itself to investigate or prosecute for various reasons, or the UN Security Council has conferred jurisdiction through the referral of a situation, or in the rare case where the prosecutor has moved with the authorization of a pre-trial chamber because a state party has proven unwilling to act and failed to shoulder its responsibilities under the Rome Statute. At this stage in the Court's history, it's difficult to gauge just what contribution to sustainable peace building the Court's involvement has made. It may be too early to assess this with any clarity. In many situations, crying out for the Court's intervention, the restoration of peace and stability will be an objective of urgent concern. These situations will also, by definition, be ones in which terrible crimes have been committed, crimes within the ICC's jurisdiction. The assumption upon which the law <coughs> statute appears to be found is that in such circumstances holding the worst perpetrators to account for their crimes is necessary, if only to bring some measure of justice to victims and affected communities, and criminal justice should therefore be part of the peace process. In a less talked about case arising out of the conflict in Darfur, they prosecuting a rebel who attacked and killed African Union peacekeepers at an outpost called Haskanita. One purpose for doing so is to deter attacks upon peacekeepers. The proceeding may thus incidentally support the peace-building efforts undertaken, in this instance, by the African Union. Justice <laughs> and peace may yet complement one another in such a case. Redress for victims and affected communities is necessary to the restoration of societal confidence and to the process of healing that deeply traumatized individuals and communities need in order for a lasting peace, a truly lasting peace, to be established. The International Criminal Court has a significant role to play in this and this is one of the purposes for which it was created. To conclude, There will often be a tension between justice and peace, apparent on the surface at times of conflict. When peace is what people long for, and the goal is to end conflict, nevertheless, the worst crimes should not go unrecognized or unpunished. There must be an accounting if true peace is to be sustained. The framers of the Rome Statute recognized this when they created the ICC to combat impunity (coughs) for crimes of concern to the international community as a whole on the basis that such crimes put the peace, security, and well-being of humanity at risk. Crimes of concern to the ICC in situations of conflict and suffering which underlie the court's work are of concern to us all. For as the poet John Donne famously wrote, any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Thank you for your attention.